The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Anna Shemansky. Hi, Anna. Hello. So later in the show, Anna and I will delve into the Canadian election results and what it means for climate change. Also, our economics editor, Swaha Patanayak, will join Anna to gauge what last week's meeting of the world's financial elite in Washington, D.C., amid the backdrop of rising problems in Latin America, tells us about the state of the global economy. But first, we hand over to our team in Hong Kong, who shed some light on what beleaguered WeWork can learn from the boom and bust that hit the shared office space business in China. I'm Pete Sweeney, and I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with Robin Mack, our Asia technology columnist about the shared office space in in China. Um, Everybody's been paying a lot of attention, especially our readers, to the travails of WeWork, um, which seems to go from bad to worse. Um, But in China, it's kind of interesting because there are some some rivals that might be going through similar troubles and might have a potential solution. Robin, what's going on? Yeah, so that's right, Pete. So actually, China has already been through this sort of boom and bust in the co-working office space. Um, So after years of just breakneck expansion and a lot of venture capital money pouring into the sector, um, you have a downturn. Um, So demand is quite weak because of, you know, slowing economic growth. Um, So that has really pushed up vacancy rates across, you know, major cities to a near decade high. Um, I think recent quarterly figures from CBRE says, you know, about, you know, almost a fifth, over a fifth of Chinese offices are now empty in the major cities. Um, So that's become, you know, a really big headache for sort of the uh, WeWork uh, rivals in okay, China. Explain specifically why this is a problem for, yeah. these, for these guys' business model. Now, yeah. they're, they're leasing the, the offices and yeah. then releasing so them? How's, how's yeah, so like WeWork, um, so a lot of these operators, they take on these long-term office leases, often in very expensive central business districts across you know, Shanghai, Beijing, and then they sort of lease it out um, you know, on the short-term basis. So once you have, you know, falling occupancy rates, then you still have to cover, you know, the costs of your lease and operating costs as well. So then your losses can actually, um, you know, you can lose quite a lot of cash if you don't have enough um, customers. Oh, that's pretty clear watching yeah. what's happened to, to WeWork's valuation. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that there might be a solution here. Now, now I saw in, in the, the piece that you wrote about this, um, this one one analytical source, Industry Association, says there are 40, 40 Chinese shared office space companies have already gone down in flames of late. But there's one that seems to have be trying to try try an asset light model. Tell yeah, us about this so, company. So there's a one company called 36KR. Um, you know, they do have an office uh, sharing spinoff called KR Space. Now, the founder, Liu Chengcheng, I mean, he admitted that, you know, they used to have a WeWork uh, model, they expanded too quickly, and then they just pretty much, you know, ran out of cash. So they had to um, you know, cut back, cut costs, they shut down locations. Um, you know, they were sued at one point for reneging on a lease. So things are pr- quite grim for this company, very much like we work today. Um, but then they've actually shifted their business strategy. So they're now focusing on targeting, you know, major corporate clients. And instead of, um, you know, taking out leases themselves and renting out office space, they're managing offices for these big companies. So they're, you know, designing offices, they're opening 
uh, sourcing locations, and they don't really take on leases themselves now. Sometimes they'll partner with landlords and they'll do a revenue split. So then that has sort of freed up a lot of the cash for them. Right. But just tell me, so a lot of these companies came to market backed by venture capitalists who expected these guys to reinvent the way that that people worked and, and used office space and paid for it. This sounds like a lot more of a pedestrian, ordinary business model. Like, there's lots of companies that also do this. Yeah, so there are major companies like, you know, CBRE, you know, JL. I mean, they do do real estate services. It's definitely much more boring. It's not, you know, a high-growth tech thing. But at least it is, you know, a sustainable business model that actually generates cash. Yeah, well, it's a lot better than going out of business and destroying your, uh, your, your backers' money. All right, cool. Well, thanks for talking to me, Robin. Well, thanks for that, Pete and Robin. Now, Antony, we have another set of elections this week. Our neighbors up north, Justin Trudeau, Mm -hmm. squeaked out an electoral victory. However, his party no longer has a majority. So this is obviously going to affect policies moving forward and particularly related to climate change. Yeah, that's the one. The one we looked at. So uh, our colleague John Foley looked at this in particular before the election. And yeah, that's the. I mean, Trudeau has come in, came in in 2015 when he did win the majority, and wasn't really promising big on climate, particularly uh, many other things he wanted to sort out. Um, but you know, you had the Paris Climate Accord that year, uh, and I think in part because you've had uh, various other democracies, not least. America when Trump came into power and Australia uh, pushing back a fair bit over the past couple of years. He's almost become, in many respects, the, uh, the, the sort of shining light, if you, well, along with a couple of European leaders, for pushing uh, climate policies ahead. And the main one he came up with was, uh, was a carbon tax, or carbon pricing some description, which is gradually coming into play. I think the, the charge is now sort of less than $20 a ton. It's going to go up to $38 a ton over the next couple of years, which sounds great because it's better than nothing, but it is below kind of what we need. So right. pretty far got, below, right? Uh, yeah, I think that most prediction most most people are saying most economists are saying you need I mean it varies on, on what kind of scheme you're looking at, but uh, you need it to be up to sort of at least fifty, if not a hundred dollars a ton, at least, for it to count and to start having an impact on people's choices and what companies are doing. Assuming companies themselves don't have their own internal pricing, which is another matter entirely. Yeah, and, and I feel like when it comes to 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 Trudeau, there is also a little bit of this split, right? Because on the one hand, I think his public face has been very much in the last few years, this idea as kind of a climate warrior, but then also he spent a lot of money um, saving a pipeline. You know, this yeah. is still a significant part of Canada's economy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's notable that the, the two areas where they did the, did the worst really were Saskatchewan and Alberta, the two provinces which are very energy rich, you know, whether it's all sands, uh, potash, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, clearly the idea of having uh, an, an incentive not to use fossil fuels and the like is not going to appeal to a large number of voters in areas which will be affected, which does get you into the whole how do you manage as a government the transition from a fossil fuel dependent economy into one uh, that uh, either eschews it or at least tries to put it on a, a much uh, sort of more rear footing. And no one's really come up with great ideas for that. We've seen plenty of problems. So, right. you know, France, for example, the Gilets Jaunes in part came out because of a desire to put taxes on, on, on gasoline. Uh, the Australians uh, earlier this year, despite uh, having a massive uh, water scarcity problem throughout the country, and also uh, a lot of, I mean, last, last their last um, summer was horrendous. There were m- many records broken for the number of days above 40, even f- even 50 degrees Celsius uh, temperatures in their, in, their, in their summer. So um, 
yet the Labour government, which is pushing a very a relatively progressive climate agenda, lost uh, to the, uh, the, the the Conservative government that was in power there. So, um, yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to do and try and manage. And Trudeau's trying to do that. And you know, the pipeline is part of that. I mean, you you can't just suddenly say let's stop uh, fossil fuels completely because then you will have no transport, no fuel, no energy, uh, you know, societies we you know would cease. So you need to have a transition. And that's what the carbon tax is meant to do, or at least partly do. Right. But as you're saying, like it involves a lot of expending a lot of political capital to try to get something like this through. And unfortunately, what we've seen throughout this last campaign with Trudeau is that he's lost a lot of political capital. Yeah, he's lost a lot. I mean, t- two, two or maybe three big reasons, right? So firstly, he hasn't balanced the budget, even though he promised to. Um, second, there was a scandal where he was uh, uh, allegedly putting too much pressure on the Attorney General to do things that, that uh, she shouldn't have been doing, and she pushed back. Uh, and thirdly, of course, uh, was the uh, scandal of him, of the photos of him in college appearing in blackface uh, that came out during the election campaign. So those three have combined to reduce uh, the number of seats they've got and lose their majority, and also means that the, that his party uh, lost uh, the, the lion's share of the, pub, of the popular vote. So actually, the Conservative Party uh, won just by about just one and a half percentage points uh, the popular vote, sort of thirty-four and a half percent. So you know he's he's got to tread more carefully. Of course, it also means he's got to go into probably uh, either he tries a minority government and just get support of parties as he needs it. He's about what twelve seats short, I think, of a majority. Or he forms a coalition government, and most likely with the New Democrats, right. who have, what, 24 seats, I think. Yeah, and when it comes to the New Democrats, how do you think their influence will affect climate policy? Well, I think they're probably more willing to go for a higher carbon price to push to be... I think Trudeau has also said, let's go, for, let's go for a net zero carbon ambition by 2050, which is pretty good. I mean, again, it's, it's so far out in the future, and if you've got nothing but a relatively low carbon tax price... It's not really going to get you very far. But that's the tricky thing, right? It's, it, it, it's hard enough doing that within your own party when you have to uh, wrestle with the issues between various uh, provinces and cities. But when you have to also consider a, a probably more left-wing party as a partner, that means your options are going to be harder to get through. And that maybe means that you don't end up getting certain things passed. Right. Or it, a trade-off in non-climate-related policies. Right, because it seems like the NDP is almost certainly going to want to increase spending, which will probably obviously have an effect on the budget, which will is not going to be very it's, – it's not going to go over well with a lot of the more conservative voters as well. So it, it does seem like – Trudeau's degrees of freedom are somewhat limited. Exactly. And also, I mean, who knows what happens in the US election next year. But at the moment, if you think he's got a year before that election, which may or may not produce a new person in the White House. Um, but, you know, the policies of the Trump administration are very much against tackling climate change, although a lot of states and cities are. So there's this idea or this fear of so-called carbon leakage where, you know, your next door neighbor is rather more willing to allow certain anti-climate policies to continue. So why not invest there instead? So that takes possibly, I'm not sure I quite buy this argument, but it possibly takes uh, investment away from Canada in certain in, in certain industries. But that's, yeah, that's, that's a fear. And I think it's certainly one he has to consider, but it's not yet proven. So we've certainly been devoting a lot more time to discussing climate risk related to the economy. And I imagine this is going to be a trend that will continue pretty sure it will. So we'll be back with a lot more on this, I'm sure. So the IMF fall meetings just concluded and coming out of that, the news wasn't great. So global growth was uh, downgraded to about 
3% for this year. And there seem to be a lot of concerns about, you know, China, obviously, about corporate debt. But, you know, there really weren't a lot of bright spots. No. I mean, to be honest, the, the, there were two things that allowed people to look at the glass as a quarter full or a third full or wherever you want to put the uh, marker. Um, one was there was some signs that there might be a temporary truce, at least, in uh-huh. U.S., China trade tensions and the eternal hope that Brexit might not go as horribly as some people had feared. Right. And, you know, that was what basically saved the meeting from being a morass of gloom. But otherwise, there's still the same worries that we had in April when these guys gathered last time. Right. And it seems to me, especially when talking about China, is that like, so even if we get to some, you know, mini deal, which probably won't be a real deal anyway, you know, uh, China buys some more soybeans. It seems to me you still have the issue that China is going to have to go through a deleveraging. Like China is shifting. Like that this has been the plan forever and obviously the trade war has kind of made this a bit more difficult, but you know, they're going to be slowing and they may end up slowing more quickly than people think and yeah. You know, absolutely. I uh, I think the, the issue with the Chinese slowdown is it's one source of you know, a big source of drag on the world economy. What's happening with the trade tensions is that sort of value chains, the knock-on effects across Europe to the big exporters like Germany or an exporter like Italy, the people who rely on them for services, manufacturing, the filter effect is huge. But the confidence also impact. I mean, China slows, you know, whether it's slowing or not, roughly how much. This is the uncertainty Mm -hmm. about where trade will be, what the structure of the global trading system will be. And that is holding back business investment around the world. And that's more troubling than just a large country slowing down. No, I agree with that. And I think that this is where when you're kind of thinking of the the kind of fallout from this, like moving forward, it, it seems to me that a lot of countries, particularly in the kind of either emerging markets or frontiers, are particularly poorly suited for this mm. moment. Yeah, I mean, Latin America, some of the countries there are quite large. And the pickup in uh, growth, the very small pickup in growth that the IMF's penciling in for next year depends on some of these large players like Brazil or whatever picking up and not having a disastrous year next year. I mean, you've been looking a little bit more at the Latin American situation. Do you want to talk us through what your thought thinking is? Yeah, I mean, I think... Obviously, when you're talking about Latin America, pretty much always, but especially right now, you do have to talk about politics because, you know, that that is going to very much affect the ability of reforms to move through, which is what the IMF has said. The only way that you're really going to see pickups is if we have some of these reforms to things like pensions, labor laws, just kind of overall business climate. And obviously, we have this weekend the Argentine elections coming up, which, if anything, it looks like the gap is widening and that... Um, the current president, Mauricio Macri, is likely to lose by an even bigger margin to the Peronists. And yes, there's some questions about whether the new ticket is going to rule, the Fernandez Fernandez ticket is going to rule the same way as the kind of when um, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner was in power before, as well as when her husband was in power before. But regardless, it, it's not a positive sign for reforms. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, we're now seeing the issue in, in Chile, where again, you had a kind of more market friendly leader coming in, trying to, you know, push through some reforms. Now, obviously, Chile was in a much better position than Argentina. But still, you know, they are very, very vulnerable to changes in global growth patterns, particularly the appetite for copper from places like China. 
And so you you do see that administration also trying to make some changes that people are very unhappy with. Ecuador, yet again, you have an example of where, you know, they obviously have the IMF package because similarly you had a more reformist president coming in after a more populist leader. Granted, they were in the same party, but that, that's a more complicated issue. And trying to push through reforms, people didn't like it. <laughs> you know, it, it, and so to me, I have a hard time buying the really bullish case in Latin America, because you, you obviously continue to have a bit of a morass in Brazil. Um, you, know, you have a president who's quite unpopular, both domestically and internationally. So an economy that really still has not recovered from, you know, both the end of the kind of the commodities boom, but also obviously the Lava Jato scandal. My issue here is that you have countries that are already kind of vulnerable, both domestically and with an external environment. Even if you have a end to the trade tensions, I still don't see that being a huge positive unless you have reforms. And with all of this popular outrage, and granted, some of it you could argue is warranted, but not necessarily the violence, but some of the um, concerns about income inequality. I don't understand how you can possibly get these reforms through with this type of political backlash. Cool. Well, Hopefully, we'll see a little bit more on how that's going to work out after the Argentine elections. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we'll have you back for, for that, hopefully. Thank you very much, Anna. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Robin Max, Swaha Patanayak and Pete Sweeney for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.